Good evening. I'm Joseph Martinez, and welcome to Dead Time Stories, a podcast by Graveyard Shift, dedicated to telling just that. Short, scary stories submitted by real people. Whether the stories are real or not, who knows? But they are scary. Tonight, our host, Deadhead, shares with you six tales. Now, please forgive me. I can take you no further. But your stories lie just ahead. Do be careful, though. Deadhead can be... Mercurial. I'll wait for you here. Godspeed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Greetings, my little cadavers. Are you prepared to travel to places no soul has ever seen? Perfect. Tonight, I have six tales of new frontiers for you to consume. First up, a story from the not-so-distant future that's all about the past. I call this one Electric Sheeple. I don't really remember a time before the grid. I'm not like the kids these days who were literally born connected but my few memories from before aren't great. Overcrowding, pollution, famine. By the time they finally perfected the technology to make the grid feel just like the real world, having everyone log on to the shared simulation was a no-brainer. Even when I was young, I knew that the world had nothing to offer me. But the grid, oh, the grid was designed to be a utopia. Everything we wanted to build in real life, but couldn't. We built it all in our new reality. And since everyone was required to log on, everyone you love was there too. For all of those who said it would be strange to live their whole lives 24-7 in a digital world, hooked into a machine, they quickly forgot their concerns. Nobody could tell the difference. That's why it was so bizarre when I couldn't find Jamie. I had married Jamie, my husband, about two years ago. We met playing tennis even though people didn't need to work out in the grid, I still enjoyed it. With Jamie, it was love at first sight. It was cheesy, but we decided on a digital recreation of Burt Bacharach to play our first dance. I generally tend to be a grid realist and only want to live like I'm told humans used to live on Earth. But hey, it was a special occasion. The first night he didn't come home, I figured he just got caught at the office. Yes, we still have jobs. But when he wasn't there in the morning and didn't respond to my messages, 
I was worried. People don't disappear in the grid. Where was there to go? A day became a week, became a month. I exhausted every resource I had to find Jamie, and nothing. A thought started to tug at the back of my brain. Could it be? No, it wasn't possible. People didn't unplug from the grid anymore. Why would they? But what if there was a glitch, something wrong in the code that had forced Jamie to unplug, or worse, kicked him out? What if he couldn't log back in? It was impossible, right? The tech had been tested, but Jamie, if he was trapped outside and I didn't look, I didn't know if I could ever forgive myself. I hadn't logged off for decades. It was illegal to do so now without special permission, but that didn't mean I didn't remember how. Sure, I knew they tracked it, but I didn't care. I had to know. I logged off. I came to in the cradle. That's what they call them, cradles, where our bodies were housed, fed, nourished, and kept safe while we lived our lives in the grid. My eyes adjusted to the harsh light as I stared up at the ceiling. Gently, I started to move limbs that hadn't moved in 34 years. It was like my brain was playing tricks on me. It felt exactly the same as moving in the grid, but at the same time, it didn't. I sat upright in my pod and turned to look at the rows of people in their own pods, just like mine, that lined the cradle, that existed in cradles all over the world. Except, when I looked, no one was there. The pods were there, but they were empty. I didn't understand. They must have all been moved to another cradle, but why were they moved and I wasn't? My bare feet pressed cold against the tile floor as I walked down the deserted rows. I yelled into the emptiness, anyone there? The only response was my own echo. I reached the front door, braced myself, and pushed it open. The skies weren't as polluted as I remembered when I logged in. Great, our efforts were working, but there was a stillness I'd never felt before. It seemed empty, but that made sense. Everyone was logged in. I walked the deserted streets until I found another cradle and went inside to sort everything out. But no one was logged in there either. Another and nothing. I hunted the streets searching for signs of, well, anything. Nothing. I walked back to my pod. The tech specialist must have had a good reason for whatever happened. I'd asked them when I logged back in. It was probably something minor, not important enough to mention. After all, it didn't really matter where my physical body was. Everyone connected in the grid. I had a plan of action. I plugged back in directly to talk to the nearest specialist. I accessed my pod settings to make an appointment. User not found. That was strange. I tried again. User not found. There was clearly something wrong. I reverse engineered it and asked the pod to show me a list of current grid users. Current users, zero. What? I didn't understand. How was it not showing anyone logged in? I tried another query. Recent users, one. Oh, no, 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 no. It couldn't be. That would mean that everything, the people I loved, everyone I interacted with every day, Jamie, they weren't other users logged in. They were all part of the simulation. The reality sunk in like a heavy weight. 
I was the only one left. The only one. I don't know what other choice I had. To live a life knowing that everything around me was fake? Or what? Live a life alone in the deserted wasteland? Yes. I knew the choice I had to make. I'm lucky I could make it. That the pod logged me into the grid right through my brain's neuroreceptors. I knew this was a truth I couldn't know. Whatever glitch had caused it, I'd make myself forget about Jamie. I'd forget about... I'd forget about all of this. I never wanted to have a reason to leave the grid again. I made the selection, climbed back into my pod, and logged in. Clearing user memory complete. User memory wipe 37 complete. Just another case of history repeating, I suppose. Maybe the 38th time's the charm. In the meantime, let's take a break while I wipe the slate clean. You've returned for another story, and so you shall have it. Our next tale takes us onto a colonial ship whose destination is death. This one is called, No One Can Hear You Scream. Why it hasn't come for me, I don't know. But then again, there's still time. That's why I'm recording this log now. Out of the 10,431 people on board this colony vessel, I am the only one left. I'm the one who survived to tell the tale. I've locked myself in this escape pod and will soon attempt to journey towards... who knows what, but the sickness may be coming for me next. I'm not sure I can outrun it. I hope someone back on home base or traveling among the stars someday finds this message. I should do this right. Expedition Log, Year 2341, Quadrant S9. I think we're in S9 by now. I lost track of that days ago. Wow, whoever discovers this recording is going to have one heck of a time sorting through this record. Get it together, Mallory. <clears throat> Expedition Log, Year 2341, Quadrant S9. Transmission from the Terra Nova. This is research specialist Mallory Quinn speaking with an account of our journey the past few weeks. Sorry, I'm not accustomed to doing these things, so I'm not sure how official they should be. I tend to just record notes about plants. And wow, what a beautiful ship to study plants on. For the first colony ship in space, they truly spared no expense. Don't let anyone ever say it wasn't a beautiful ship. And for one that was supposed to serve as a home for so many people, we could have been happy on board for generations to come. I guess I should get to the point, huh, future people? It all started when we crossed into quadrant S7 on the far side of the Gamera moon system. S6 was the furthest any kind of ship had ever reached before, let alone a colony, so it was quite a celebration. The captain declared a holiday and everyone had a full day off. Things got a little out of hand and with the free champagne and open bar, 
Some of us may have partied a little too hardy. That's why when people started getting sick the next day, everyone just assumed they were hungover. I wish it was just a hangover. Anyway, we left them alone in dark rooms with plenty of water to recover. If we had done something right away, would it have changed anything? I don't think there's any way to know. It was a full week after when we first noticed something was wrong. My coworker, Fernando, he didn't drink at all, but his wife had suffered what we were now calling the great hangover of quadrant S7. Fernando didn't come into work. When our supervisor went to go check on him, his wife had died. Fernando was hysterical with grief, ranting, raving, clawing at the walls. My supervisor said he struggled to hold him down. They ended up having to restrain him from hurting himself. By the time our ship's therapist visited him to try and talk him off the ledge of his grief, Fernando was dead too. Boy, it took long to start, but once it did, the casualties didn't stop. Passengers were taking ill left and right. Whatever the sickness was, didn't discriminate. Top-level officers, sanitation workers, children, the old. Everyone seemed to be at risk. Fear and panic spread even faster than the sickness. Nobody wanted to get close to anyone else. Everyone feared that they or their loved ones could be next. Quarantine didn't seem to work, and worst of all, nobody could figure out the cause. A ship filled with mankind's best scientists, all at a loss, all worthless against whatever was happening to us. One by one, my friends and family fell sick. One by one, they went mad, scratching, clawing, out of control. And finally, one by one, my friends and family... Oh, that noise. Even on this deserted ship, somehow... Fernando? But you're dead. I saw your body. I, I took your vitals. How... At least you didn't go alone. And you're not alone either, Cadavers. Here's another break to accompany you to our next story. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. 
Time for a little history lesson, cadavers, on the lesser-known third wheel of a famous expedition. Our next tale crosses from sea to shining sea in Lewis and Clark and Edward. My name's Edward, Edward Munch. Doesn't quite have the melodic ring as Meriwether Lewis or William Clark, but it was the name I was born with. A good enough name to be tasked right alongside Lewis and Clark by President Thomas Jefferson to explore the newly acquired Louisiana Territory, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. May as well have been all the way to the other side of the world. There was just one difference. You see, Lewis and Clark set off with a full-on expedition party, complete with supplies to sustain the journey and goods to trade with the natives along the way. My expedition was designed to be a little different. Of course, I went out with supplies, I was no imbecile, but in my party, I only had one companion, a native guide named Awanasa. She was familiar with the land and would help me navigate. While Lewis and Clark left with much fanfare prepared to meet and embrace those they met along the way, we were to take a slightly different route, at a fair distance from Lewis and Clark. The goal was simple. Should Lewis and Clark's expedition suffer any obstacle along their path or any group that would not let them pass, we would be their failsafe. At least one of our parties would complete the journey. For everyone knew that the Louisiana Territory held great riches and resources, and we couldn't waste any time securing them for our own. My instructions were clear, and I was confident. If faced with any resistance, I would waste no time with niceties. I had never failed before. Why start now? Besides, we had God and destiny on our side. Awanasa and I left the same day Lewis and Clark. For the first six months, Nothing out of the ordinary. Awanasa was a worthy companion. We shared everything along the journey and grew to rely on each other as we crossed the plains and mountains. When I was paired with her, I expected that she would be an asset, but I never expected how much I would grow to trust her. That's what made the betrayal all the more painful. One evening, we had made camp and were sitting around the fire about to rest for the evening. I had been careful most of the trip not to get too close to my travel partner. But that night I, I was excited, excited and tired. I started talking to Awanasa about our plans to move the people out west, how thrilled I was that so many wonderful things that we had seen would fetch a great price among collectors in England or engage investment from businessmen in France. I saw a great and prosperous future for our young nation. I spoke to her about the nations our fathers had left behind with their great factories, amazing cities that had dwarfed what we had built here so far, how grand it all was. She must have not understood because her mood changed. She told me that she saw it too. When I woke in the morning, she was gone. Without Awanasa, I was left to my own devices. Thankfully, she had left me the maps we had plotted out beforehand. I didn't understand why she had betrayed me and abandoned our journey. But I had to proceed. After all, I was someone who got things done. It must have been in God's master plan. I traveled for a few weeks and all was fine, albeit lonely. Then I came upon a great forest. I could see on the maps that Awanasa had plotted a path around the woods 
<laughs> Strange. It seems that the woods was even and dry, but the path that she had charted was winding and through small mountain passes. It would have added weeks to my travel. The forest route would take a couple days at most. It was curious. It must have been a mistake. I plod ahead into the woods, thankful for the shade of the trees after spending such a long time in the prairies. I was a few hours into the forest when I started hearing something larger moving through the trees. So far I'd only seen rabbits and other small animals, but I raised my weapon, hopeful that there was a larger prey that I could use for dinner for the next couple days. It was nearly dark by now, so I couldn't make out much more than the shape of something darting through the undergrowth. I tentatively stepped forward. I was getting tired, and I was starting to imagine echoes of laughter bouncing off the trees. Suddenly, a great weight was upon me. It knocked my weapon out of my hands and pushed me to the ground. Hands, hands pressed so hard down on my chest and throat that I could feel a hot, hurried breath so close against my face. My attacker was, was a man. Well, well, half man, half animal. But who cares what you call it when you're at its mercy? I stared into the creature's glowing yellow eyes and let out a piercing scream. But the moment that I opened my mouth, he opened his, his long, lithe tongue inched towards my face and licked the sweat off my brow. Through the darkness, I could see the creature smacking its lips. He was hungry. I closed my eyes, and I prayed for it to be over soon. Poor Edward. <laughs> he never got to see his American dream come true. Lucky for you, cadavers. You do. Here's a dose of capitalism now. Thank you for doing your patriotic duty. For that, you've earned another story. This tale takes us out to sea, where a young woman learns the meaning of the phrase, precious cargo. I never really had any interest in ocean travel before, but I've always taken odd jobs, and this one seemed like a good way to get out of town after my breakup with Tom while actually making some money at the same time. Plus, it seemed pretty easy. Accompany the cargo ship, Submit daily reports of the weather, temperature, and miles covered in a day. Babysit the cargo, whatever it was. I did find it odd that they didn't tell me what they were carrying, but hey, it was too good of a job to ask too many questions. The rest of the crew wasn't big, but it seemed like they had worked together for a while. They all had real tasks on board. Josiah, the ship's captain, Louise, the first mate, and about a half a dozen other crewmen. They were all men. I guess that's how it still usually is on ships, but everyone was super nice to me. I ate my meals with them, but for the most part, I stayed out of the way of their work and in my quarters except for the three times a day I needed to take measurements. We were about two weeks into a month-long trip when the storm broke. I jolted awake in the middle of the night to the sounds of thunder and the rest of the crew yelling frantically as they worked to steady the rocking ship against the raging waters. I was surprised I had slept through it for so long. It seemed like the waves were set to roll right over us. And then, they did. I don't remember what happened next, or, or maybe I blocked it out. When I came to, the ship was in pieces, but we were miraculously all alive, washed up on a nearby island. The crazy thing was, 
None of the crew seemed too concerned. They told me that although the storm had knocked out our communication devices, they knew this place. It was a smaller island, uninhabited, but they passed it on every journey. It wasn't too far from normal shipping routes, and they said it would be easy to signal for help. The ships passed where we were stranded every couple of days. We would set up a flag on the shore that would be easily visible. Okay, I guess. I never thought anyone would be so nonchalant at being literally stranded on a deserted island. But they were the experts. And we had food and supplies we were able to salvage from the pieces of the ship. It wasn't exactly a Tom Hanks castaway situation. Everyone helped each other find a place to sleep, and we made ourselves as comfortable as we could for the night. The next morning, we were halfway through eating our makeshift breakfast when someone noticed. Josiah, the captain, was missing. I guess everyone had assumed he had wandered off to go to the bathroom, but no one had seen him at all that morning. We searched the beach and the jungle around it, but nothing. Night came again before any clues or plan took shape. How do you find a missing man when you're missing yourself? We talked about how we hoped the next ship would come soon and fell asleep. I woke with a start to hear the men running. Without thinking, I started running too. If there was something worth getting away from, I wasn't gonna stick around long enough to find out what it was. I followed Louise, the first mate, as he sprinted through the jungle, making his own path through the trees. All of a sudden, Louise fell, and through the darkness, I could make out something wrestling him to the ground. I heard Louise's cries as whatever that thing was dug into him, but I kept running as fast as I could, climbed up a tree and waited wide awake until dawn. In daylight, the jungle wasn't as terrifying as it had been the night before. I started a long walk back towards our makeshift camp. If I had anywhere else to go, I never would have went back. But I didn't. My only hope of being rescued from the island lay back at that beach. The forest may not have been dark anymore, but it was quiet. Strange, wasn't it? No real wildlife on an island untouched by man. I walked for what seemed like an hour. I must have ran further than I thought the night before, when finally I heard something. Thinking maybe it was a crew member back at the beach, I rushed towards the sound. It was a crew member. It was the captain, Josiah, laid out in the middle of a clearing, dead. Next to him, Louise. And next to him, every member of the crew, every man who had survived that terrible storm and braved the seas had found their end on the island. And they weren't alone. From out of the trees stepped a woman. She had dark eyes, torn clothes, and was pale, as though she hadn't seen the sun in quite some time. Her hands were covered in blood, and she was looking straight at me. Before I could speak, she silently motioned behind her, and what must have been a dozen other women joined her in that clearing. They seemed just as scared as I was, but there was no remorse in their eyes. What I did see? Pain. These women were not monsters of the island. They had been on our ship. These women were the cargo. The crewmen? Not as good as I had thought. The ship's horn sounded like a dream. Someone had seen the signal we had set up on the beach. I reached out to the woman in front. Hand in hand, we led the way back to the beach while I helped the others clean up. When the rescue boat finally arrived on the shore, I told them that there were no other survivors. The rest all perished in the storm.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Oof, those guys learned what happens when you try to put women in a box. (laughs) Let's take a break while I clean up the mess. Excuse the dust cadavers. This next one is particularly old and crabby. (laughs) Here's Tool. When they first announced the discovery, I couldn't believe it. I didn't believe it. A fully intact tomb in the Valley of the Kings? And a boy mummy? It was too good to be true. But of course, good luck always seemed to follow Howard Carter around. Never mind that he and I came up together, did the same work. It's always famed British archaeologist Howard Carter who gets written up in the papers for his newest astonishing discovery of Egyptian antiquities, or unearthed unparalleled treasure. What does Carter have that I don't have? Money. I set base for my own excavation work a few miles away from the valley, a safe distance from all the newspapers and press covering Carter's boy king. The tomb I was working in had largely been ransacked by the time we had found it, but it held a massive range of artifacts from ancient Egypt's working class, everyday tools, implements, kitchenware, some in very good condition. Things that tomb robbers didn't deem to bother with. Guess that doesn't compare to gold and royal lineage. But what can I say? I prefer to center my work on those who are the real backbone of society, the overworked and overlooked. I was excavating a new area, far from the rest of my crew. It was dark, muggy, and smelled of ancient death. That's when I first heard it. What's I didn't understand at first, and was slightly concerned that the heat of the Egyptian day and fervor of my work was affecting my hearing. I laid down my tools for the day. But the next morning, when I was cleaning out an old commoner's bowl, I heard it again. Certain that my brain was still playing tricks on me, I sent my crew on a break to avoid embarrassment. When they had cleared, I moved toward the gentle whispers. It was louder toward the rear corner of the tomb, in an area my work hadn't reached yet. You see, I work systematically, logging the area and how things are arranged as I go. I should have stuck to that plan, had another member of my team around to take notes, observed the layout of the items in that corner. We might have avoided all of this, but I didn't. I was too curious. The noise grew louder as I approached the tomb's wall. Finally, I could understand the whispers. Find me. 
What? I pressed my ear against the wall. It was unmistakable. Find me. I was hot. I was overworked. That must be it. It had to be it. But as I drew away from the wall, I noticed something. The wall looked the same as any other part of the tomb, but it felt different. The texture. I ran my fingers over the wall. There was a clear line where one material ended and another began. In the shape of a door, my crew started to return from their break. I sent them home. I might be going crazy, hearing voices, but what I had found was real, and I was going to be the one to get credit for it. With reckless abandoned, I grabbed my tools and tore into the wall, chipping away piece by piece. The voice continued to speak to me, begged me to let him out, told me that the discovery that waited behind the wall was a tomb unlike any other. He told me what I already knew to be true. Commoners weren't buried in secret chambers. There was no need to mask the entryway to a final resting place of a craftsman or slave. No, I had discovered the tomb of a pharaoh. He had been waiting for the right person, a worthy person. That night, when I tired, I slept on the hard floor next to the chamber. I wasn't taking any chances. No one was going to steal my discovery. As I slept, fantasies of riches and acclaim flooded my dreams. I would finally get my due. Not Carter. Not anyone else. Finally would be my name in all the papers. Remembered for all eternity. I woke with such a renewed vigor, I didn't care anymore that I was hearing the voice of a pharaoh through the walls manifesting a miracle to finally make sure I got what I deserved. Almost there. Find me. Finally, I managed an opening large enough. I stepped through with my lantern, and light hit the walls of the interior room for what must have been the first time in thousands of years. The reflection of my lantern blinded me as the light reflected off of gold, jewels. It was unlike anything I had ever seen. Everyone knew the kings of ancient Egypt liked their tombs to be opulent, but this was beyond. This was Discovery Eclipse Carter's tomb. The greatest discovery of the century would be mine. Unfortunately, that wasn't all that was in the chamber. There was a dark figure standing in the center. My hand shaking, I raised my lantern to see clearer. The pharaoh? No. The figure before me was a man in ragged clothes that looked to be centuries old. He thanked me for finding him and freeing him from the pharaoh's curse. For taking his place. I turned to run, but the wall I had come through, the wall I had painstakingly broken through, piece by piece, was now somehow whole again. And the man... The man had vanished. That was... I don't know how long ago that was. I've been here ever since. Somehow unable to die. In the first days, I heard my crew come back, but none of them heard my cries for help. None of them saw what I saw on the tomb's wall. So now I wait. I wait for another to come along. So, what are you waiting for? Find me. Oh, don't fall for that one, cadavers. I did. And look where it got me. <laughs> well, let's do a trade. One more break for one last story. Ready for our last tale of the evening? This one is about a competitive scientist who may have just met her match. I call this one Science Fair. I was always the smartest in my class. 
since kindergarten. I know because my parents asked. My kindergarten teacher was taken aback at the question, but couldn't deny the truth. I was just born exceptionally gifted. Sure, it's hard being the smartest in the room, but it's a mantle I'm willing to bear. Of course, I was the first in my class to read, write, and learn all my times tables. And I have a great mastery of color and composition. But science was always my academic forte. There's something majestic about the scientific method. Question, hypothesis, experiment, conclusion. That's why I couldn't wait until I was old enough to enter the seventh grade science fair. My experiment and presentation won first prize in my grade, of course. Next came the city competition, state, and finally nationals. It was going to be easy. But a weird thing happened at the city competition. Even though my project was clearly superior, a group of three seventh graders from the school across town took the prize. Some dumb experiment about chemistry and environmentally friendly fuels. I was understandably livid and shredded my second place ribbon to pieces the moment I got home. And to lose to a group project had insult to injury. Their brains combined didn't have half the talent my frontal cortex held. The competition was clearly rigged. Unfortunately for them, I've always been a smart detective as well. So I snuck into their school's chemistry lab one Wednesday afternoon and broke into the science locker that held their project, determined to find the evidence of wrongdoing. When I couldn't find it, I realized they must have hidden the evidence. And their project wasn't as good as they thought it was. After all, they didn't store their chemicals and fuels properly. Rookie mistake. I never meant, I mean, I never thought they would pay for it with their lives. But the explosion that happened in their school science lab on Thursday morning was unforgiving. Oh well, even our bodies can't avoid entropy. You know, all energy is transforming into a less ordered state. Or in their case, quickly transforming into a less ordered state. Boom. The upside, for not only me, but society as a whole, was that I was back on track. In the wake of their untimely demise, I won state and took it all the way to nationals. You know the rest. Blah, 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 Harvard, blah, 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 youngest person ever to receive a PhD, blah, 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 and now I'm up for a Nobel Prize. I mean, let's be honest. I'm a lock for it. It's just a matter of waiting for them to announce it tomorrow. That's why this is so strange. It's almost like I didn't have control of my body, like another force was guiding me, making me reach for the vials, move the beakers and light the Bunsen burners. I've been working nonstop for the past 10 hours. It's almost daylight again. I've tried to stop, but for some reason I can't. I've relied on the scientific method my whole life, but it's failing me now. Because if I employed the scientific method in this moment, my hypothesis that three ghostly forces have taken over the use of my body and are working me to death would be utterly unbelievable. But then again, consider the evidence. The bright blue first place ribbon that appeared out of nowhere on my desk. 
It's very badly burned, like it was in a fire of some kind. But you can still make out the words, City Science Fair, embossed in the front in gold. So, what's your hypothesis? My hypothesis is that we're all out of time for this session of slaughter. I hope you enjoyed our six stories about new frontiers. And do come visit me again soon, cadavers. We have many more short, scary stories to share. Sweet dreams, my little cadavers. <laughs> You've made it through the night. Congrats. Let's get going before that changes. The six stories you've just heard were written by Andrea Listenberger. Tonight's production starred Todd Lights, Gogo Lomo David, Mary Catherine Greenewald, Todd Denson, Kayla Jeffries, Jacob Davison, and Kate Peterson. With editing by Andrea Listenberger. I believe you can find your way home from here. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>